This is The Guardian. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Brendan Burrell, and I'm the author of Going Underground, Inside the World of the Mole Catchers. I'm always looking for stories about these kind of little uh, secret corners of the world, these subcultures where people are just passionate about some small thing that I think many of us can relate to, even if we can't relate to the particularities of it. And I remember I just, I woke up one morning and I thought, mole catchers, are they a thing? Do they exist? And I, I guess I've, I've written a lot about people and animals and how they get along in the world or don't get along in some cases. So this wasn't totally out there for me. But I did a search on the internet, uh, as every person knows how to do. And uh, the first thing I stumbled on was the website for the Guild of British Mole Catchers. And I was immediately intrigued. It sketched out the history of mole catching, you know, which dates back hundreds of years. And it laid out this explicit code of ethics. And I thought, wow, this is, this is pretty intense stuff. And it was all very intellectual. And so pretty soon I, I, I discovered that actually there wasn't just one mole catching association. And that's when this really became a story. I saw there was also the British Mole Catchers Register and the Association of Professional Mole Catchers. And I thought, that's a lot of organizations for a tiny profession. And then I, I discovered this incredible feud that was threatening to rip apart this, this historic endeavor. <laughs> Working on the story was very exciting for me. I hadn't really spent that much time in the UK and I zigzagged. I think I landed in Heathrow and I zigzagged west to Oxford and then back east to Norwich and then up to the Lake District during this perfect time of the year in, in early fall. And uh, I, I really had a great time meeting the mole catchers of all stripes and the people who were hiring them. And so I, I think about this story very fondly quite often, especially this time of year. <laughs> Looking back, I, for me personally, one thing that has changed is I have become a homeowner in the, the years since. And just the other day, I was hunting down a gopher here in my yard. So I felt even more sympathy for some of the characters in my story as I sort of pondered what to do about this thing. Do I let him go about his business for a little while or how am I going to handle it? And so that's made me think a lot about the dilemmas that people felt. And, you know, on some level, it's very silly. It's like, well, why can't I just let this guy, you know, take a few of my plants and go exist with him? And I do want to, but I just don't want him to mess too much stuff up. (laughs) 
Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. Going underground. Inside the world of the mole catchers. By Brendan Burrell. Roger Page purchased his home in East Bilnia, Norfolk, farming community, about 25 years ago. For the better part of those 25 years, he bore no ill will toward the moles. He was fond of wildlife, or at least what little of it remained in the country. A family of deer foraged in the backyard. Foxes lulled in the road at dusk. Moles were a rarity. Page worked as a commercial pilot and when the occasional molehill erupted on his lawn, he would pat it down before departing again to New York or Hong Kong. They seemed to have an understanding, he and the moles. They mostly kept to the woods, while Page mostly kept to the garden. But after he retired five years ago, Page expanded his back lawn and the moles became more persistent. As more and more molehills sprung up, Page came to feel as if their labours were engineered to produce in him the maximum anguish. He purchased traps at the garden centre, but they would often remain unsprung, or worse, sprung and empty. He decided to escalate his counter-assault. During a stopover in Amsterdam, he bought a pungent bag of flower bulbs advertised as a natural mould deterrent. The moles didn't mind. Next, he installed a solar-powered mole repeller, a torpedo-shaped device that emits vibrations that are supposed to keep the moles away. The moles carried on. He tried flooding them out with a water hose. Moles are strong swimmers. Finally, he tried suffocating them with the exhaust of his lawnmower. Moles can survive in low oxygen environments. Page knew it wasn't healthy to go on like this. Last September, he found the phone number of a woman named Louise Chapman, also known as the Lady Mole Catcher of Norwich. Traditional mole catching in Britain has experienced a resurgence following a 2006 European Union ban on strychnine, and Chapman is one of many trying to profit from the boom. A former drama teacher, she has been profiled in national newspapers and travelled to Australia in 2016 to be featured in the first season of a reality television show called Deadliest Pests Down Under, where she applied pink lipstick before hunting a funnel-web spider. With the help of a business coach, she has also tried marketing country mole catcher franchises across the country, offering newcomers to the business everything they need to get started for £7,500 plus a cut of their proceeds. Chapman is a compact blonde woman and, when she's on the job, clad in Wellington boots. When we arrived at Paige's home, she popped open the back of her white Audi estate car and retrieved a bucket containing plastic flags, a garden spade, and a long metal rod with a bulb on the end. A mole probe. We followed Page to the side of his house. 
There, a ragged strip of lawn about the size of a tennis court lay dotted with patches of overturned earth, each patch spaced every two feet or so. The lawn looked as though it had been strafed by artillery. Chapman walked the length of it, taking note of small details. A crack in the soil, a dead patch of grass, a pile of fresh dirt. She saw herself as an archaeologist who could construct the workings of an underground metropolis based on the scantest traces on the surface. I reckon there are three, Chapman said at last. She gave Paige a quote for the work. £80 for the first mole, with the price dropping to £60 a mole for two or more. She couldn't promise to dispatch them on the first visit or even the second one. It could take weeks, but he didn't have to pay a penny if she wasn't successful. No mole, no fee, they call it in the business. You've already tried to catch them and they might have got wily, she warned. Clients are sometimes taken aback by Chapman's prices, which she makes a point of delivering in person. Page, however, readily agreed that it was worth it for his sanity, and Chapman got to work. She began by cutting a cube of turf from the roof of the mole run and carefully set it on the ground. Then she inserted a trap shaped like a fizzy drink can into the hole and covered it with a few clumps of grass. This trap, known as the Doofus Half Barrel and first painted in 1920, is based on traditional designs made of a clay or wood barrel and a horsehair snare powered by a bent stick. In the modern metal trap, a spring-loaded wire loop functions as the snare. When the mole enters the device, it makes it halfway through this loop before brushing against the trigger. The wire loop then accelerates upward, crushing the mole against the trap's curved roof. Page was clearly torn between his desire to have an attractive lawn and the violent death he was about to sanction. I don't like killing animals, he said. Chapman, on her hands and knees, looked up from her work. You were driven to it, she told him. When she had finished setting traps, she said that either she or her colleague Carol would return in a few days. Chapman tossed off those last words casually, but they represented one of the most divisive issues in mole catching today. Unlike mouse traps, mole traps do not kill instantly and do not always kill cleanly. The world of mole catching is bitterly divided between those who believe that traps should be checked every 24 hours to ensure that any injured moles are dispatched quickly rather than being left to die a slow and agonising death and those who don't. Because of the expense of driving out to check an empty trap day after day, opponents of such regulations argue that it would hasten the extinction of mole-catching as it has been practised for centuries. It will criminalise all the mole-catchers, Chapman says. Britain would be overrun by molehills, which are not only unsightly, they can also potentially spread disease to livestock, trip up horses on racecourses and ruin golf courses and football pitches. To professionals such as Chapman, such threats appear to outweigh the possibility that a maimed mole or an unfortunate weasel could be squirming in pain beneath someone's lawn for days.
The idea of a professional who specialises in mole control can seem like a quaint relic from the past. In the 18th century, mole catchers were employed by every parish in England to keep the mole population under control. Catching these creatures required such skill that practitioners were remunerated more generously than surgeons. Mole catchers zealously guarded their methods, divulging them only to their own children. The earliest English descriptions of mole catching practically take the form of spells. Roger Sharrock in 1660 advised his readers to cut up red herrings, burn them and place the pieces in the mouths of molehills. In a pinch, garlic or leeks might also work. I have not tried these ways, Sharrock added, and therefore refer the reader to his own trial, belief or doubt. For a mole catcher to be successful today, he or she must engage the client with the most romantic notions of his profession. This, at least, is the theory of Duncan Emmett, a mole catcher in his sixties who has the long beard of a wizard. If you take that magic away, if you take that showmanship away, then all you are left with is the killing, Emmett told me at a dimly lit pub near his home in Biggleswade, Bedfordshire. Because you have to kill the mole, haven't you? That isn't an easy thing for a lot of people to bear. Even in agricultural settings, mole catching still takes the form of an annual rite. Outside the town of Ludlow, near the Welsh border, I visited a sheep paddock where 40 or 50 dead moles had hung from a barbed wire fence for so many years that their desiccated bodies had turned greenish from lichen. It looked like a ceremonial sacrifice. Although the practice is fading, mole catchers employ such gibbets to prove that the promised work is completed and farmers use them to niggle their neighbours into clearing their own fields. The word mole is thought to derive from the Middle English word mould warp, which literally means earth thrower. The animal's forelimbs are cartoonishly large, pink and practically hairless, and apart from an extra digit, have the appearance of a doll's hands. So prized were mole's hands that farmers once kept them in silk bags as talismans for good luck and to ward off toothache, epilepsy and scrofula. Moles dig their tunnel systems to catch earthworms, shoving the excavated earth out of vertical passageways to produce molehills. In a 1976 study, researchers counted 7,380 molehills on a single hectare of English pasture, estimating their total weight to be 64,500 kilograms. Sheeps that eat dirt from molehills can die from listeriosis, while winter feed for dairy cattle can become foul-tasting or toxic if contaminated by soil bacteria. Moles can be detrimental in other ways as well. Nearly every British mole catcher can tell you the story of King William III. On the 21st of February, 1702, he was riding his horse at Hampton Court when it tripped on a molehill and threw him to the ground. He broke his collarbone and developed pneumonia, which killed him two weeks later. His enemies in Scotland are said to have raised toasts to the little gentleman in the black velvet waistcoat. Mole control became a national policy in 1566, when a bitter cold period known as the Little Ice Age threatened England's food supply. Queen Elizabeth passed an Act for the Preservation of Grain, which would remain in force for the next three centuries.
The law prescribed bounties to be paid for the destruction of a long and dubious list of agricultural vermin, including everything from hedgehogs to kingfishers. Some parishes paid out a halfpenny per mole. Others appointed mole catchers with contracts lasting up to 21 years. In addition to their salaries, mole catchers sold the silky mole skins, which were prized for the tailoring of waistcoats. In the early 20th century, worms dipped in strychnine became the preferred method for controlling moles on farms. The poison blocks nerve receptors along the spinal cord, causing the victim to become frantic and hyperstimulated. Their body is overcome by painful convulsions which lead to a backward arching of the head, neck and spine, a state known as epistotonus. And because strychnine doesn't break down in animal tissue, it can also ripple through the food chain when a bird of prey or even a domestic dog consumes a poisoned mouse or mole. In 1963, when the House of Commons was debating a bill to ban the poison, David Renton, the Minister of State for the Home Office, testified that moles, strangely enough, failed to show the same symptoms of pain as other animals. In the end, the law banned strychnine for mice and rats, but exempted moles because no ready substitute existed. In the following decades, British farmers purchased more than 50,000 kilograms of strychnine each year, enough in theory to kill 2.5 billion moles. The entire mole population in Great Britain has been estimated at 31 million. The poison was only phased out with the European Union's new pesticide regulations in 2006, which led British newspapers to make grave predictions of a mole explosion. At the same time, the regulation led to the rise of the modern mole catcher, drawing in dreamers who wanted to make a living from this unusual business. When Louise Chapman first started trapping moles in 2014, she joined an organisation named the Guild of British Mole Catchers and took a class with its founder, Jeff Nichols, who is considered a leading authority on the topic. The Guild, which was founded in 2008, is one of three mole-catching organisations in the country and has about 150 dues-paying members, along with 200 registered supporters. Unlike the British Mole Catchers Register and the Association of Professional Mole Catchers, the Guild has strict rules about checking traps daily. A letter that the Guild sent out to members in 2009 explained that daily trap checking was gaining a strong momentum from numerous sources and the Guild had adopted a self-regulating stance before it is dictated to us by some bureaucratic directive in Brussels. Chapman claims to have known none of this and one day in October 2014 she was surprised to receive notice that she was being kicked out of the Guild. Its agents had evidently discovered that she was failing to follow its rules. I tried being reasonable, and they don't want to play like that, Chapman told me. Chapman didn't just join a competing organisation. She bought up one that already existed. Membership in the British Mole Catchers Register would give mole catchers credibility and visibility, she promised. At £75 a year to join, it also costs nearly twice as much as the Guild. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. The story continues right after this.
I'm Grace Dent. And I'm back. Friends, it's time for your fourth helping of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me with more celebrity guests like Don O'Porter, Graham Norton and Mallory Blackman as we throw the fridge doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. You'll notice I'm talking a lot. That's because I'm, I'm hoping somewhere along the way I don't have to eat it. <laughs> oh, the, the level of devilment in your face. Comfort Eating returns on the 18th of October with new episodes released every Tuesday. Comfort Eating with me, Grace Dent, is supported by Ocado. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. When I first began looking into the Guild of British Mole Catchers, I was surprised to find that Jeff Nichols's name is not included in the list of officers on the website. He had spoken to me briefly by telephone, but later proved difficult to communicate with, responding to my emails erratically and failing to answer my questions directly. He was friendly, in a way, but he expressed a fear that I might invalidate his life's work. He was, he told me, on the verge of a kind of breakthrough in ensuring higher welfare standards for the mole, and he was concerned about his own safety. I've been told to sleep with one eye open because I might smell smoke, he told me, referring to an anonymous phone call he'd received from a mole catcher who was unhappy with his efforts on behalf of British moles. I decided 
that I had to meet him in person. It had just stopped raining when I arrived at the Royal County of Berkshire show held near Reading. The air was heavy with the scent of wet grass and animal manure. After circling the grounds, I finally found what I was looking for. A makeshift arena decorated like a Smurf village with artificial flowers, cartoon backdrops and two wooden chests with signs warning, Danger, keep your distance. A stout man with a rosy complexion popped out from a tent behind the stage. Nichols had a red scarf around his neck, a canvas hat on his head and a headset microphone bent in front of his mouth. Ladies and gentlemen, he announced, I'm a professional grass shark hunter. With that, the show began. On stage, Nichols directed his wife to remove the chains from a number of boxes and warned onlookers to run in the other direction should he drop them. He cracked the lid on one of the boxes and produced a three-foot-tall mole puppet he had had custom-made in California. It was named Freckles. Over the course of the half-hour show, as Nichols delved into the mole's life and habits, his style shifted from corny to educational and back again. Do moles smell, he asked. If you leave them in the back of the car, they do. After the show, I introduced myself and Nichols eyed me suspiciously. He warmed a little as his passion bubbled up and he offered me a cheese and onion sandwich from his cool box. I just want to fight for the moles who have had such a bad deal for so many years, he said. Nichols has been catching moles since he was a boy when he had to make his own traps and all those years of killing had not numbed him into the plight of his prey. It had only furthered his certainty that they deserved better. What he wanted was a simple thing. The government currently recommends that mole catchers check their traps daily to ensure that moles are not suffering unduly. Nichols would like that rule change to be mandatory. I say to my boys, my youngest is 26, when you leave this planet, you must leave something behind or there's no point in being. Either a book or a song or a sculpture, Nichols said. My path is moulds. I must do something for them. Get this welfare for them before I leave this planet. There is something jarring about the idea of a humane kill, as though the fact of taking a life can be mitigated by minimising the pain inflicted during death. Most authorities agree that what is known as the time to irreversible unconsciousness is the relevant variable in determining how humane a kill trap is. Whereas a standard mouse trap will dispatch the animal instantly by snapping the spine from above, the doofus style of mole trap applies its blow to the chest with less predictable results. The shortcomings of the doofus trap have been known for a long time. In 1951, a committee reporting to the British legislature on animal cruelty wrote that the spring of the ordinary type of mole trap was too weak to kill instantaneously. More recently, a 2004 report on mole control by the Department of Environment, Farming and Rural Agriculture, DEFRA, concluded that the performance of existing kill traps 
or the way they are used, is questionable as a more humane alternative to the use of strychnine. I saw the brutality of the doofus trap with my own eyes when I rode around with a mole catcher named John Noblet, whose work largely comes from dairy farms in Lancashire. Noblet is the embodiment of the 21st century mole catcher, a straight shooter with no time for the theatre of some of his colleagues. He sometimes bags more than 6,000 moles per year, and he sets so many traps that he has a GPS mounted on his quad bike to pinpoint their location. He has earned the title Master Mole Catcher from the Guild and wants nothing more than a clean, humane kill. When he pulled one freshly laid trap from the ground, the mole inside was still alive, with the thin belt of metal clinched around its waist. All four of its feet were waving around in sad circles. Noblet whipped the animal against a metal box on the back of the idling quad, and the life went out of it. He set the limp creature down on its side. A perfect sphere of blood bubbled up out of its ear. Nichols, as part of a lobbying effort, has amassed a dossier of suffering, collating his own disturbing accounts and testimonies from like-minded colleagues such as Noblet. The 37-page report, which Nichols shared with me, contains a photograph of a mole caught by just one paw, another by its snout. According to Nichols, other styles of traps, including the popular scissors trap, are generally less humane than the doofus. In the report, Nichols describes how he has spent years setting traps and waiting for them to trigger so that he could closely monitor their efficacy. It was a long process and worth every hour, he writes. What he witnessed confirmed all his worst suspicions about the cruelty of his beloved profession. Never once did he witness a mole receive a fatal strike. Quite regularly, he saw moles struck below their bellies, struggling for more than five minutes as their bodies filled with blood. I was, in fact, allowing moles to suffer in the traps I set. This undetected misery was in my hands and was and is totally unnecessary suffering. The observations led Nichols in 2008 to design a modified Dufus trap for Proctor Brothers, a Welsh company founded in 1740. This trap, which has a stronger spring to make it a more efficient killing machine, is widely available, but there is no legal requirement to use it over other trap styles. Under the Pests Act of 1954, trappers can only use approved traps to kill stoats, weasels, rabbits and squirrels and they must be checked at least once per day. Nichols cannot understand why moles and rodents do not merit the same protection. Several years ago, a European Union study on trapping vindicated Nichols's views, concluding that there is no scientific justification for not including all species in trapping regulations and that kill traps should be inspected once every 24 hours. While some may think live trapping moles offers a humane alternative, a wet mole in a cold plastic tube can quickly succumb to starvation or hypothermia. There is also the question of where to release them. Because moles are highly territorial, if they are released in a neighbouring territory, they will potentially tear each other to pieces. Nichols is tight-lipped about his government contacts, but he has had the ear of politicians such as Chris Davis, a Liberal Democrat and former member of the European Parliament who previously came out in support of the strychnine ban. 
Bernard Donoghue, the Labour peer and former Minister for Farming and the Food Industry, was once listed on the Guild's website as a patron. In the last year, Nichols claims he has got his report in the hands of someone as high as you can go at DEFRA, which has the power to set trapping regulations. One reason that Nichols is so careful not to reveal too much about his political contacts is that at every opportunity he has had to advance his cause, he has been foiled by his nemesis, Duncan Emmett. In 2008, Emmett co-founded the Association of Professional Mole Catchers as a counterweight to the Guild of British Mole Catchers. When Nichols tried to get the Guild's Code of Practice endorsed by an umbrella organisation of British pest controllers, Emmett rallied his own members to halt it. When Emmett heard that Nichols was trying to get new rules passed in Scotland, he filed freedom of information requests with the government so that he could challenge it. Emmett declined to share the information he obtained from these requests. When I spoke with Emmett, he told me that daily trap checking would be devastating to his members because of the potential cost and time required to drive out to the same yard again and again. Nor did Emmett believe that such rules would achieve any measurable advancement in mole welfare. Why not check traps twice a day as they do in Sweden, or every four hours or five minutes? Despite putting up a good fight, Emmett admitted that a rule change is inevitable. The public concern over animal welfare will, he believes, be decisive. He, Nichols, will pull it off in the end, Emmett said. People don't want a mole in their garden, but they don't necessarily want to see it cut in half and displayed on their gate. In an era when farmers and foodies alike have embraced the idea of sustainability, a call to a pest controller with their traps and chemicals feels like a sin. The central dilemma of the modern mole catcher is to demonstrate that not only are their services ethically sound, but that they are also valuable and necessary. Some scientists believe this may not be an easy task. On a blustery Sunday morning, I met Rob Atkinson near his home in Ludlow. Atkinson is the former chief scientist for the RSPCA and author of the natural history book, The Mole. Although he corresponded with Nichols while at the RSPCA and has supported research on mole traps, he came to realise that they had different goals. For Atkinson, it wasn't enough to find nicer ways to kill moles. He didn't want them to be killed at all. Atkinson is a soft-spoken, thoughtful man who has wavy grey hair and a downy white beard, and I couldn't imagine him harming a single creature. He admitted to me, however, that he was once tasked with clearing moles out of his parents' garden. He still remembers the excitement he felt when he would see a sprung trap. But he added, even then, there was this sadness. The landscape, once dynamic and alive, soon grew still. The rain washed over the molehills and they gradually flattened out. You've done what you intended to do, but there's a feeling that something is gone that was once here, he said. Moles are in no danger of becoming extinct, but they are a reminder of Britain's ancient natural history. Unlike other species, such as the grey squirrel, which were introduced by humans in recent centuries, 
The resident mole has lived in Britain for more than 350,000 years. In the late 1980s, Atkinson studied the lives of moles while working on his master's degree at the University of Oxford. He interviewed farmers about their impact and tracked the movements of moles in the field. He came to the conclusion that mole catching was, for the most part, useless, a practice that should have died out years ago. In fact, scientists believe that moles benefit vegetable crops by turning the soil and eating pests. Overall, the annual cost of moles to the £25 billion British agriculture industry has been estimated at less than £5 million. If you don't like them on your lawn, does that give you a reason to kill them? Atkinson asked me. He told me about one particular moment that had stayed with him from his research around Oxford. It was summer, and dry weather had driven the moles so deep underground that he rarely saw much activity on the surface. Then, one evening at dusk, Atkinson was walking through a field when he heard a noise like crinkling paper. It was the sound of grass roots snapping. The ground rose up, creased and fissured. Earthworms fled to the surface. The earth split open. Atkinson spotted a mole's snout poking through the soil, periscope-like. He fell to the ground and dangled a live worm. The mole snatched it between its jaws. It didn't swallow the worm immediately. Instead, it ran its claws along the length of the worm, sloughing the unwanted dirt from inside the translucent body like small pink fingers squeezing a tube of toothpaste. It was one of the most magnificent things that Atkinson had ever witnessed. Next thing he knew, the mole had gobbled up the worm and disappeared. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.